Let's, um, let's take our Bible and let's turn to the book of Ezra. We're in Ezra chapter 7. You know that by now because of our scripture reading. And we will be in two chapters. We'll finish up chapter 7. And then we will cover all of chapter 8. Now, I have said repeatedly this is not a verse-by-verse study. There's a lot of this in, in, in Ezra that would be very laborious to deal with. And uh, I'm trying to get more than the high spots, but, but also not take too long with some of these things that might not be relevant. Now, last week we learned uh, that chapter 7 begins this second division of the book. If you take your Bible and right there at the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, you write that this is a division in the book that's very accurate. And then also this is the second wave of exiles that are returning home. We learned this, uh, that this second wave was under the care and the leadership of Ezra. If you pay attention to the way the wording is, beginning in chapter 7, it will turn into the first person because Ezra is writing and he is speaking about himself. Chapters 1 through 6, Ezra's not on the scene. He's still in Babylonian captivity. But now we see that the second wave comes. He's under the leadership. They're under the leadership of Ezra. He was a skilled scribe. The King James says, ready scribe. And we will notice that language. In our scripture reading in verses 27 through 28, Ezra is saying, I, I, I was strengthened. The hand of the Lord was on me. So we see him in the middle of this book. Just to pause here for a moment, I'll tell you one thing that I have really loved uh, in my study time, not just studying to preach, but studying for my own self. I have loved seeing how Ezra was Word of God centered and Word of God saturated. He was Word of God centered and Word of God saturated. As we journey through the book, we're going to learn that he brings about a lot of work in the lives of the people, and it all hinges on the Word of God. We're going to see some wonderful and sad things take place, and it all centers on the Word of God. So he is Bible-saturated and Bible-centered. We, as ministers of the gospel, must be Bible-centered, Bible-saturated. Does that matter about the new whims and fancies in the life of the church? Does it matter what a lot of other ministers do? We're going to be Bible-centered and Bible-saturated. Those are the men of God who are going to lead Nola Baptist Church. If Brother Keith and I have anything to do with it. All right, last week, in last, also in last week's message, I gave you some wording that describes the work under Ezra. They were returning, coming back. We're seeing that. We see that here. They're returning home. They are reforming. Here in these verses, we are, we are going to see that God gives them the tools to reform. That's the Word of God. And then we see reforming and repenting. We're going to see repentance and works of repentance begin to take place. And they are still rebuilding. Now the temple has been finished, but we will see that there is still some rebuilding. And we will see evidence of this spiritual reviving as we continue in this chapter. Now, if you write these words down, you'll begin to remember them in your mind. And I do that on purpose. This returning, reforming, uh, this repenting, this rebuilding, this renewing, because these are themes that we see all through this, this book. 
All right, the title of the message tonight is The Return of God's People. And this is the second wave under Ezra, The Return of God's People. We're going to cover the rest of chapter 7, and then we're going to cover chapter 8. Again, I'm not going to read all of these verses because of time. And we're going to look at two main truths, the great provision and then the great return. The great provision and the great return. Trust that you are taking notes. If you have difficulty with that, we can help you with that. Every now and then someone will ask me for copies of my notes. You're welcome to those. But the return of God's people. If you would, look at your scriptures. And we're going to start in chapter 7. And and again, I'm going to just touch on these verses and come back and refer to these verses. And I would advise you to go back and read these verses very carefully. So we see in verse 11, now this is the copy of the decree which the king, that's Artaxerxes, gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law and of the God of heaven. Perfect peace. And then we go on to see what Artaxerxes says. I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel, that they may go back to Jerusalem. And then we see in verse 15, there is a transition there. Starting in verse 15, we're going to see all of the goods, all of the treasury that the king makes available to the people. So from verse 15 all the way down to verse 44, it's nothing more than provision after provision after provision. And we're going to study that and break that down. And then we see... In verse 25, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates, judges, that they may judge all of the people who are in the province beyond the river. This is the authority that the king gives to Ezra as he journeys on the other side of the Euphrates. And then we see those verses that we read earlier. Verses 27 through 28, which really describe what was taking place here. God had moved on the heart of Artaxerxes to bless the people of God for this work. Now, verse 1, chapter 8. Now these are the heads of the fathers' households and the generations or the genealogical enrollment of those who went up with me. Notice the language, me, Ezra. From Babylon. Then these first 14 verses are groups and lists of people who journeyed. And then we see verse 15. Now I assemble them at the river. And what does it say? And we camped there three days. And we observed the people and the priests. So what you have here there is all of these people. They have gathered there. And they're getting ready to embark on this journey. Then verse 21, then I proclaimed a fast there, there at the river, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey. And then we see that they embark on that journey. And then we see in verse 33, thus we came to Jerusalem and we remained there three days. So they made it all the way back. Remember that's about a thousand miles, about four months journey through wilderness from Babylon Crossed the Euphrates 
to the south and to the west to Israel, the homeland. And then in verses 33 through the rest of the chapter, we see worship. So, I know that I zoomed through those verses, but that is a lot of verses for us to read, and you get the gist of that. Now, before we get into the main observations, the main truths that I want us to see, I want to touch on some smaller observations that will give us a a feel for the environment. I want you to have a feel for the environment, a feel for the setting, and not just to feel spiritually, but an overall understanding uh, what's, what, what the environment is in this work. Notice in verse 13 that the Jews were not commanded to go or stay. That's in chapter 7. I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. That's Artaxerxes. And what is he saying? He is saying that they can go. The king said that those who are willing to go may go. This is a very positive thing. This is not a command for him by him saying, leave my kingdom. They're in his kingdom. He's saying you may go or you may stay. So notice Notice how Artaxerxes is reacting to this situation. Also notice the respect the king has for Ezra. Verse 25, notice what it says. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river. Artaxerxes sees the wisdom of God in Ezra as a man of God. So notice that. He is reacting positively to Ezra and Ezra as a man of God. Also notice the recognition of the king's kindness by Ezra in verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this In the king's heart. That's Artaxerxes. But notice. To adorn the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. So we see here. We see here that there is kindness. This is kindness and blessing from Artaxerxes. Which we need to see. This gives us an understanding of the the environment. this, This situation. This is not a negative thing. This is nothing but positive. From the gracious work of God in the situation, to the kindness of a pagan king, to the provision of a spiritual leader in Ezra, and also the material possessions that are provided. So this is the environment in which God is working. Simplistically, you can remember it like this. First, There was great reverence for God from Artaxerxes and the Babylonians. Second, there was a great respect for Ezra from Artaxerxes and the Babylonians. And third, there was a great readiness to provide for the work of God by the king and the Babylonians. So this is just wonderful. This is beautiful. And again, this underscores, this highlights for me the fact that God is sovereign God is in control no matter how bleak the picture may seem. 
God is in control. And when God began to, to fulfill His plans and purposes, He brought about these circumstances for His people. Now, let's get a little more specific here. And I want us to notice the great provision. The great provision. Now, it's more than just material goods that we see here. That can catch our eye starting in verse 15. We're going to look at verses 12 through 14 and verses 25 through 28. So here in these verses that make up the second part of chapter 7, we see that there is a wonderful provision. Now, a question. This, one, this is one for you to ponder. Who is making this provision? Obviously, the language reads Artaxerxes, a pagan king. I don't believe I have to explain this anymore. We see it. But we must see that it is a sovereign God who is providing through a pagan king. I want you to hear that. God can work through pagan people. God can work through pagan nations and pagan kings to bring about His work and His plans here on earth. And that's exactly what He is doing. So this is the great provision. Now, two things out of this. First, they were sent off under Ezra's care. They were sent off under Ezra's care. Verses 11 and 12. What do we see? Now, this is the copy of the decree which the king gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe. He was learned in the words of God and the commandments of God. And then verse 12, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law, of the God of the heavens, perfect peace. And now I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and their Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with you. So what we see here is the people of God were sent off under Ezra's care. If you look at the language, you can see that this decree was given by the king and he was given by the king to Ezra with the expectation of Ezra's leadership. His leadership was obvious, it was expected, and it was commanded. Artaxerxes expected Ezra to fulfill this role. So they were sent off under Ezra's care. Now there are several things under Ezra's care that I want us to see. Notice he was sent to inquire concerning the law of God. I've not read this, so I read this earlier. Look at the second portion of verse 14. Verse 14, the beginning, I'll read it as well. For as much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand. All of the translations use the word inquire. Now question, what matters were he to inquire of? What was he to investigate in Judah and Jerusalem? Does it say? He just says, go and inquire. Well, what was he supposed to investigate? Everything. Ezra was to investigate and look. And he was to deal with everything that he found according to the law of God. You get that? What, is, what does the king say? You go, you inquire of the whole set of circumstances, everything that's going on, according to the word of God that is in your hand. You see? And look, I can tell you a great New Testament example. We learned this in our study of First and Second Timothy. 
Paul, who was the mentor, and Timothy, who was the student. Paul comes back to Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, Ephesus, and he finds it in shambles. He leaves Timothy there, and he says, you straighten everything out. And he goes on to do some things for him. He kicked out some false teachers. He started that work of reform. But what does Paul say? Now, you finish it according to what I've taught you. And that's exactly what Ezra was to do. He was sent to inquire concerning the law and inquire of everything. Also notice, he was to be a governor. We see that in verse 25. We also inform you that you are... Uh, excuse me, that's verse 24. Verse 25, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges. Now, a question. What is the difference between these two titles or these two positions? In doing some of the language study this week, I found and discovered that both of the words used here, they are derived from a root word that means to judge. And it is difficult to draw any distinction between them. The one translated magistrates is that which gives its title to the book of Judges. So what do we have here in these titles? These are judges. These are people who are to judge the people and judge circumstances in the land. But he was a governor because he was to appoint those individuals. Notice he was to be a teacher. We see that in verse 25. Ezra was to do two things in teaching the Word. I'm going to go back and read that because I want you to see it. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, that's the Word, appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all of the people who are in the province, beyond the river, even all those who know the laws of your God and may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. What do we see? He was to do two things. First, he was to make sure that the Jews, God's people, knew the law of Moses. And second, he was to teach anyone that did not know the laws of God. So there are two things going on here. He is to teach God's people and he is to even evangelize those pagans. Remember those Samaritans that were there? So he was to be a teacher. And then notice he was to be a judge. We see this in verse 26. And whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed upon him strictly, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of goods or imprisonment. Ezra was to be, a, was to be appointed to a very important position. Ezra in, entrusted this... Uh, Ezra was, was given uh, these, these, this role of a, of a civil government official... Over the Jewish people, he had the power to fine, the power to imprison, the power to banish, even to put to death offenders. You see? There's a lot that Ezra was to do. But notice that first main truth. They were sent off under Ezra's care. Look at the great care that he was to pay attention to. Then again, under this great provision, notice second, they were sent off with so much material goods. So much you could put treasure in your notes. We see that starting in verse 15 all the way down to verse 24. If you examine these verses, you will find that the Jews were provided 
an extraordinary amount of possessions and freedoms in their finances. Really, they were just loaded down. Several things I want us to notice about these material goods. Notice they were provided by the king and his counselors. We see that in the beginning of verse 15. And to bring the silver and the gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered. So the text reads that the king himself and the king's royal officials provided the Jews with silver and gold. Notice that they were provided by all in Babylon. Look at the beginning of verse 16. With all of the silver and gold which you shall find in the whole province of Babylon. This reads basically all that you can get. The king is saying, you can get all you can get from my people. And the king was giving them permission to ask his people to help them in this work. Then notice they were provided by the Jews. The second part of verse 16 says that the Jews offered offerings. This was an offering from the people of God. And the language there in the end of verse 16 says their God. And that signifies that these were the Jews. Notice they were provided by the royal treasury. Verse 20. And the rest of the needs for the house of your God, for which you have may have occasion to provide, provide for it from the royal treasury. This appears to be a blank check, but it's really not the case. What is meant here is this. What you lack when you get there, when you have all of your needs assessed, what you lack, come to the treasury to make up the difference. Several commentaries that I have studied here indicate that this most likely would have been done under the supervision of Ezra. In other words, it would have been Ezra who would have stepped up and asked for more assistance from the treasury. Notice they were provided by those on the other side of the Euphrates. Verse 21, And the king, Artaxerxes, he issued a decree to all of the treasurers who are in the provinces beyond the river. These were provinces and peoples that were under the authority of Babylon. This would have been those on the other side of the Euphrates from Babylon. And these would have been ordered to provide in the work as well. And then the last thing here, notice they were provided by tax exemption. Verse 24, we also inform you that it is not allowed to impose tax tribute or toll on any of the priests, Levites, singers, and doorkeepers, and other servants. What do we see here? It appears that there were certain servants and officials who were serving in the temple, and they were given special tax exemption as a part of this provision. So notice that the Scriptures tell us with all of this gold, all of this silver, all of these possessions, they were given to the people. But notice what all of this was given for. Go back to verse 28. Talking about King Artaxerxes. He has extended loving kindness to me, God, before the king. God has extended loving kindness to Ezra before the king and his counselors and before all of the kings and mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened. And according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me, I gathered leading men to go up. For what? Look back. 
Because what does it say? That all of these things were done in the heart of the king, verse 27, the second part, to adorn the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. All of this was given to finish decorating the temple. So we have two great provisions. First, and the most important, the people and the work were provided a leader in Ezra. Now a question. Why was this leadership more important? We're going to answer that. Second, the people and the work were provided with an exorbitant amount of treasury. Now, I want to put this in perspective from you by looking into some first century Jewish history. There's a very famous historian. His name's Josephus. He was a first century uh, uh, Pharisee. And he is a noted and respected historian. I have his works and I refer to them at times. But during Roman times, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us of treasury being regularly brought back and forth from Jerusalem. And in that day, they would have had an escort above 20,000 soldiers to provide security. That's how much bounty they had. Now, the most important thing that God provided was the leadership. And the second most important thing that God provided was all of this treasury. Now, an application. In application, what does the church need desperately today? Now, I know that none of us are authorities about the work of the church around the world. As a matter of fact, most of us have a very limited experience and exposure to the work of the church. And what I mean is what takes place here in our culture and where we have come from. It might not be that way, maybe in other places in our country. But in our limited amount of experience, we can ask that question. What does the church need desperately today? The church needs leadership. Godly men to govern the church lead the church, shoulder the work of the church, and that's exactly what took place here. There was a man of God who went and rallied the leading men of Israel, we see in verse 28, to shoulder this work, to lead the people and fulfill God's work. Another question, application. In our limited amount of experience, what has the church done with the provisions without godly men to lead her in the work. You see how that helps us understand the importance? What's more important? We have seen many churches take wonderful provisions and use them for nothing but selfishness. We've seen so many churches who have weak leadership at best and they take the provisions of God the monies and the properties and the facilities, and it's all about self. It's not about reaching other people. It's not about ministering to people and reaching the poor and reaching the spiritual orphan. It's not about kingdom work first. It's about our comfort and our securities. See, that sheds light on the order. And listen, 
We must understand that the most important thing that Nola Baptist Church could have is godly men who are under the leadership and the anointing and the direction of God to lead the church. God can take care of the provision. Um, God can give us anything. He owns it all. I mean, if these Jews were to swell up with pride and look up to God and say, look God, look at all the gold and the silver that that, that the king, Artaxerxes, gave us. You know what God would say? That's no big deal. I own it all. And I want you to see. I really want us to see the great provision here. And if we're not careful, we'll focus on the passages, verses 15 on down to verse 24, and we'll focus on all of the material goods. And it's far more important to see that the man of God, the men of God, are far more important than the goods. Truth number two, I want us to see the great return. We see this in chapter 8. The provisions are made. Ezra has been appointed a great leader of the people. And Ezra has gathered up leading men there at the end of chapter 7. And now we will see this delegation move out to return. And all of chapter 8 is about the second wave of exiles returning. Now, just as before in chapter 7, I want to give us a feel for the environment. I want to give us a feel for what we're going to look at. Verses 1 through 14 are a list of individuals who were in this delegation. It's a genealogical list of those who came. But in verse 15, we see that Ezra had a problem. As he moved among those who were returning, remember they were camped there by the river, he found out that there were no Levites returning. So he makes an inquiry of the leaders. And he recruits Levites to come and make the journey. We see that in verses 18 through 20. Now what's the significance of this? Levites were central to instituting worship at the temple. Without the Levites, worship could not function properly. But also notice something else in verse 15. They were camped for three days at the river. Although this place geographically is not really known, this was a meeting place for them to start their journey. This is very important for us to see here. Because verses 21 and 22 tell us a lot about this environment. Because we're going to see that Ezra right here was at a tremendous crossroads and we're going to see him have to make some important decisions. Several things here. First, Ezra sought protection from God. Verse 21, Then I proclaimed the fast there at the river that we might humble ourselves before God to seek Him a safe journey for our people, our children, and the possessions. Now, notice that they were at the river three days and Ezra proclaimed a fast. This was for one thing, to express dependence on God. This was a very dangerous journey. The roads leading back were full of bandits and thieves who robbed at will. And in that day, even messengers who traveled back It was understood that they would travel with groups or caravans for their own safety. So they were seeking God for protection. Now, in this verse, in this seeking God, I want you to notice three things. Notice they humbled themselves. Notice they sought protection for their children, their people. And notice they sought protection for their provisions. So that really throws a blanket over everything. 
They sought protection from God for the whole journey. For their wives, their children, their families, their older people. And they sought protection for all the goods that had been entrusted to them. And so they humbled themselves before God. But notice something else. Second, Ezra was ashamed to ask the king for help. This might seem strange. Notice verse 22. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way. Because I said to the king, and he's quoting himself, The hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to us. Didn't that seem strange? Ezra was ashamed. Why is that the case? Before he realized the danger, Ezra has, had boasted to Artaxerxes of the power and the protection of God, and he expressed a confidence that their God could protect them. It's as if when he was before the king, he said, No, sir, we don't need your troops. We have God. Now that the danger was before them, now that the danger threatened, he found himself afraid. He found himself afraid and, when he, and, and, and would have been glad to have an escort exactly like Nehemiah did. If you fast forward Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 9, Nehemiah had a royal escort and Ezra would have been glad to have it. But after his boasting in the Lord, he was ashamed to ask for an escort. So you see some humanity there with Ezra. So first... He sought protection from God. Ezra was ashamed to ask the king. And then third, God answered their prayer. Verse 23 tells us that they were able to come to God with an assurance. They were able to come to the circumstances with an assurance that God had heard their prayers and He was under their watch and their care. Fourth, Ezra delegated responsibility. Verse 24 then I set apart twelve of the leading priests. And then if you'll go through the language, verse 25, I weighed out. Verse 26, thus I weighed out in their hands. And then I said in verse 28, you are holy to the Lord and the utensils are holy. Verse 29, keep watch of them. Verse 30, so the priests and the Levites accepted it and they weighed out all the silver and the gold and the utensils to bring them up to Jerusalem. So Ezra delegated the responsibility, the care of all of the treasures. Here we see that Ezra uses his authority to delegate this responsibility. If you take the time to weigh out the goods, you will see that there are tons and tons of treasure. Just one little note here that will help us. In verse 26... It lists 650 talents. That would be 25 tons. This gives us an idea of what they were carrying. Fifth, notice they were successful in their journey. Verse 31 through 32. Then we journeyed from the river. And what does it say? And then on the first month they went up to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was over us. Verse 32, we came to Jerusalem and remained there three days. So they were successful. 
They had a safe journey. They were delivered from the possible enemies and ambushes along the way. And then six, the last thing, they engaged in worship. We see this in verse 33. They're engaging in worship. After a three-day rest, they did the first appropriate thing and they worshipped. And they worshipped in two ways. First, they deposited all of the treasure before God. We see that in verse 33 and 34. said that they took the gold, the utensils, and they weighed them out in the house of God. In other words, they counted it and they weighed it to make sure that it was all there. And then we see, second, that all of the peoples worshipped. Representatives from all of the twelve tribes worshipped. In verse 35, what does it say? They had burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls for all of, the, all of Israel. That tells us that they were representatives from all of the twelve tribes. So they engaged in worship. So here we see a great return. This was great in several ways. First, they depended on God for help and not the king. That, that, that journey was nothing more than miraculous. And second, God came through and they returned safely. And then third, they, they brought such a large amount of treasury to the temple. And remember what verse 27 and 28 tells us, that the purpose of all of these goods were for finishing and decorating the temple. Now, in application of this great truth, this great return, we must see that when we embark on kingdom work, we must trust God. We must see that when we embark on kingdom work, we must trust God. Now I want to pause here and make some observations. Declarations. To be honest with you, we live in a time and a day where we enjoy freedom, and comfort, and security. We did not risk our lives to drive out here to church. There was not an armed guard at the door. We do not risk arrest. We are not in fear. We're not have to, having to worship in secret. We're not having to divide up in smaller groups because of safety. There are people on the face of the earth that do not worship in safety. So, to be honest with you, we are really at a disadvantage in one way. We do not have risk involved in our worship. We are blessed in in many ways by great material goods and monies and jobs and health and opportunities. But I was reminded of that in a small little way when I went to India. India is not necessarily as open as our country. It's predominantly Hindu. As a matter of fact, now they are under the control of a a Hindu form of government. Um, Those government officials, they want to stamp out Christianity, whereas before... The government was a little more friendly and open to other religions. But I got a little taste of that when we were in, in India. We were in the northern part of the country in the state of Bihar, one of the poorest countries, or excuse me, one of the poorest states in the country. It borders Nepal. If you look at the map of India, if you just go to the north, right about there in the middle, you'll see the state of Bihar. We had been there with uh, uh, Mukesh at the orphanage. And we traveled quite a distance into one of the villages to, uh, into, uh, into the villages and through villages to a particular village. And it was a village of 
Emmanuel Kisku. You'll remember the name Emmanuel. We helped him build a church there. It's kind of an, an interesting journey. We all gathered up and piled up in an SUV and we went through all these country roads and dangerous roads and through fields and the best way I can describe it, it was just miles of deer camp type roads. But we were there in his church gathering and we were preaching and teaching. And the way it works when you preach, the visiting preacher preaches, then the, the host preacher, he stands up and preaches behind you and explains it. So it's just layer after layer. I had preached and then Luke got up and he explained some things that I had said. And, and, and then uh, Mukesh was there and he got up and explained some things I said. But in the middle of Luke preaching, all of a sudden, a lot of these men from the village descended on the meeting. And they were not Christian men. And for a little while there, I was a little scared. Because Hindus can be very violent. Now, as it turned out, they, were, they had heard that there were Americans there and they wanted to see us. Luke was fearless. He was preaching to the church preaching a message to the church. When those men came in to the left, he turned and he shifted and started preaching the gospel. Then little, little Mukesh stood up and he started preaching the gospel. And I was sitting in my chair and I, I was afraid. I thought, oh no. But what I'm trying to show you is we don't have to worship in fear. And in many ways... It can be a disservice. Now, I'm not questioning the provision of God in that area. But what we see here is that they took great risk. And when we embark on kingdom work, we must trust in God. To be honest with you, there are people in my family who really didn't want to see me go to India because of the risk. And you know, a day might come when we might have to worship in risk. And a day might come when we might be called to engage in gospel work then involves risk. How could we say that we will stay in our comfort and just stay here and never consider risk in kingdom work? And we must see also that no matter where we go, no matter what we do, no matter what risks we face, God can deliver us safely. Aren't we learning that God is sovereign over all? If it was within God's will and plan for them to be attacked by bandits and thieves, they could not have stopped that. God is God. He can take care of us here, there, and everywhere. And no matter where we go, no matter where we are, the risks that we incur in doing God work under the leadership of His Spirit God can take care of us. Now, as I begin to close, as I begin to wrap up this message, what do we learn here? There's a great provision. God provided them a great man of God and men of God. It was Ezra who appointed other leaders. It was a great provision with the men of God and all of the treasury that they need, all of the treasure they need to finish the temple. And then there was this great return, a great caravan. God protected them. And they got back home with the, the, the treasure to do the work of God, the men of God to lead in this work. And so what we see at the end of this result 
is they get to one place. 101 Temple Street. You see? It all came back to the temple. The end of their journey was the temple because the temple was the focal point of their lives. It was where the the very presence of God resided. It was the, the focal point of everything in their life. It was the focal point of worship. They were the people of God under the leadership of God and they were coming home to rebuild the temple. So you see where they ended up? See, for us today, we must see that the center of God's activity today is the church. There are a lot of Christian organizations out there. There are all kinds of movements out there. And look, those might be good and fine, but when it comes down to it, the real work, the nitty-gritty work, the full work of God is expressed in the New Testament local church. I'm reminded of that importance from time to time. Let me give you a little example. I've referred to this particular individual and some circumstances have brought this back into my life lately. I like to study different missionary works. I've been studying some different missionary works for some particular purposes that pertain to us. But a missionary that I studied about and learned about last summer, his name was Frank Drown. Frank Drown was a missionary to Ecuador started his journey in the late 40s, and he spent 37 years ministering to the largest lowland tribe there in Ecuador. Frank Drown was connected to Jim Elliott and those other missionaries who died at the hands of the Wadani. But what I've enjoyed about this missionary story is the fact that it was very successful. It was very biblical, very biblically sound. As a matter of fact, I've been doing some more research concerning this mission's work. I've been making some phone calls to the missions organization that's still in existence that sent Frank and his wife Marie out. As a matter of fact, Frank Drown is still alive. I talked to someone this past week that said he battles with dementia, but his wife, they're both in their 90s. She is still doing very well. As a matter of fact, one of the ladies that I talked to at this missions organization said that she lived next door to them and that she was starting a new Bible study in her home. But I want to know more about the work. I don't want to just know what went on with Frank Drown. I want to know about the health of the church today. The health of the work going on now. Other missionaries. I want to get a full picture of the work. Because I want to learn. But this is what really showed me that the work started right. As Frank Drown was telling his story. He was talking about how he and his wife, right after they were married in 1944, they went to missions training school to get ready for the field. And this is what he says about his training. The focus of the training period was on what a missionary's main task should be. I remember reading that. When I read that phrase, my attention, I got a shot right up in my seat. He went on to say, a missionary's, this is part of his training, This was more than learning a strange language, holding Bible classes, more than winning people to Christ. A missionary's chief goal should be to establish churches, indigenous churches that will be self-governing, self-supporting, and self-propagating. If your work as a missionary does not result in strong native churches that can carry on without you, our leader pointed out, you will have failed as a missionary. And here's where the authority comes from. This had been the Apostle Paul's method. We realized 
And with God's help, it would be ours. Now, what's the point? They understood that the focal point of God's work on earth was the church. It wasn't just about Bible classes and schools and medical care and even reaching the lost. They were to form churches. And listen, they were forming churches and we are reforming a church. And look, we are reforming this work to be Bible-centered, Bible-focused, Bible-saturated. That's exactly what they were doing in Ezra's day. It was the Word of God and the work of God that was central to that work and it brought them all the way back to the temple. And we're coming all the way back to the church. We're about reforming the church and growing the church and rebuilding the church according to the Word. And any other church work that we would be involved in, any missions work that we would be involved in, guess what it would focus on? The church. So you see how similar that work is to today's work. So, as I close, what do we see? We see this great return of God's people. The second wave. God provided greatly and they had a great return. It's a beautiful story. Lord, help us. Help us to learn. Lord, this underscores so much for me.